So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be here once again tonight. And I pray that as we study your word, that our hearts would be touched and we can come in after a long day. I know that some have been working all day, perhaps maybe not even having the opportunity to have dinner. Uh, but, Lord, we want to feed on your word. We want to be edified and encouraged. We want to be uplifted. And, Lord, may we be reminded what a blessing and the benefits that there are for us being here. Bless the children that are having their lessons. Bless the middle schoolers and the high schoolers that are filling those rooms upstairs. I just thank you for every single person that has come through the doors here tonight. And may they understand that you love them and that you desire to do incredible work in them and in through them. So, Lord, uh, we give you this time as we study your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this section of the book of Isaiah... Uh, Isaiah that we're looking at. Isaiah here um, is speaking the words of the Lord. And the Lord is really reiterating to his people to turn away from the idols. And as we read this, we see the heart of the Lord in all of this. It isn't that the Lord is saying to his people, you know, turn away from the idols and judgment is coming in a harsh, angry God. But we see his heart in all of this, that he's saying to his people, listen, turn away from these idols. They're not going to help you. They're not going to benefit you. They are false. And I'm the creator. There's no other God. And I'm the one that has brought you out of Egypt. I've done mighty works among you. And we know that the Lord, we hear his heart as we've been going through these last few chapters. And he says to them that you don't have to fear. I've redeemed you. I called you by your name. You are mine. So he is owning them and saying, you belong to me. I've redeemed you. You don't have to be afraid. And when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And we see these tender-hearted words that the Lord has towards his people. And listen, the same heart that the Lord had towards his people recorded for us 2,700 years ago is the same heart that he has for you. And the Lord, you see, he wants us to turn away from anything that becomes a priority over him in our lives. And as we went through and hear the first part of chapter 43 and verse 7, he would say to them, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. In other words, please keep this in mind. And when we make this our own, this truth that we just read, that you are created for his glory. The greatest that day, because Jesus, he said that I came to give you life and what? Life abundantly. And the Lord is saying that you are created for my glory. Oh, not so that you can live for yourself. You weren't created that you can give glory to the idols of your life. Matter of fact, it was in the previous chapter that you recall that the Lord said, I will not share my glory with anyone else. I will not share my glory with any carved image, any of those idols that you guys are bowing down to. And the Lord desires for you and for me to live a life where we glorify him and we were created for his good pleasures. Now, sometimes when Christians hear that and particularly maybe young Christians, they might think I was created for your, for your glory, Lord, for your pleasures. Well, what about me? What about me? I have goals. I have things I want to do. I, I have things I, that I want to pursue. And I just want to say this. 
that if those things become an idol in your life, you're going to end up being dry and you're going to end up being disappointed and you're going to miss out on that abundant life that the Lord has for you. And the Lord is pleading with his people and he's saying to you and to me today that I am the one, but that behold, I do a new thing. Verse 19, this is where we left off of the chapter. Now it shall spring forth, shall you not know it, that I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And here the children of Israel had gone their own way. They did what was right in their own sight. They were pursuing the idols. And yet here they were in the wilderness. They were in the desert spiritually. They were experiencing terrible consequences and repercussions because of their sin. Uh, the hearing of the Lord had become dull and their, their hearts had become hard towards him. And the Lord is pleading with them saying, I have made you, I created you, I've redeemed you, that you are mine, that you are precious in my sight. Remember as we went over and I have loved you and I want to do a marvelous work in you. Turn back to me. I want to forgive you and I want to restore you. Maybe somebody's here tonight. You're thinking, you know, I've been in rebellion against God. There's been idols in my life, a priority over, you know, my relationship and love and devotion to the Lord. And that really is an idol. As we read this, we can think that, you know, I don't have a statue up in my house or in my yard and a little, you know, altar that I have it at that I bow down and worship. But anything that is a priority over your relationship with the Lord, that is an idol in our life. Many things can become idols. Uh, we can have possessions that become idols, a relationship. Even for me, that I need to be careful that ministry doesn't become an idol. That, you know, I, I'm only uh, wanting to have bigger and grander and more and not content and all of this. And you see, we are to have him be the priority in our lives, in every area of our lives. And when we do that, listen, whatever it is that you enjoy doing in your uh, hobbies or what you enjoy spending time doing or maybe perhaps in your business and in your jobs and in your relationships, whatever it might be, as he's the priority, you're going to be refreshed and renewed and you're going to be ultimately satisfied and fulfilled. And here as we see, let's pick it up at verse 20, the Lord again saying, the beasts of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen, and this people I have formed for myself, and they shall declare my praise. You are formed for him that he might do an incredible work in you. And as you do make him the prior priority of your life in every area of your life, you're going to be refreshed and renewed. And even as we've talked about that, it was Jesus himself that said to that woman there in John chapter five, the Samaritan woman, listen, I have living water to give. And if you drink of that water here, Jacob's well, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I have to give, you will never thirst again. So the question for all of us is, where are you going when you're thirsty? What source are you going to? You know, it's hot, it's summertime. Uh, it's been nice to have the last uh, few days be cool, hasn't it? But we're going to get back to the summer heat, and we're working in the yards, and, and you guys work hard in your yards and, and working hard outside all day and, and whatever it is that you do. And when you're thirsty, you don't go outside and put dirt in your mouth. You go to the source of water to refresh yourself. 
And yet there are people today, Christians, that are thirsty because they keep going to the world to drink. And I pray and hope for all of us here that we would understand this, that Jesus has living water to give to you. And he says, he promises that if you drink of this living water that I have to give, you'll never thirst again. And he would say to the people in John chapter 6, that you come and eat of me and drink of me, you'll never hunger and thirst again. So I pray that we would really understand what is being told to us in this magnificent book, the words of the Lord through Isaiah writing to us. This is for us, not just for them 2,700 years ago. And he continues to plead with them, even though they're unfaithful to the Lord in verse 22. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. It's kind of a sad verse. Here is this work I want to do. I created you. I love you. I've redeemed you. I brought you out of Egypt. I protected you. I I want to do a new thing. I want to be one that that makes a road in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. I want to pour out my spirit on you, is what he says. But you would not call upon me. You would not call upon me. Sometimes we get so busy and we're, you know, looking for answers in this place and this new fad and this new philosophy and going this direction rather than going to the Lord and saying, Lord, that I want you truly to lead me and guide me in life because you see you were creative for his glory, for his good purposes. Please don't think that the Lord says that so you can have a miserable life. So you can, you know, just have a boring life. Oh, I got to be a Christian. And it's restrictive and it's limited and it's boring. And who knows what the Lord's going to have me to do. And I'm just sitting at home and I'm weird to everybody and reading my Bible. And I go to church. Listen, you want an exciting life? You want a good life? You want a blessed life? Then live for him. Live for him. And if you live for yourself, you're going to end up being dry and you're going to end up being thirsty and you're going to end up being disappointed. So here the Lord, he's pleading. He said, you wouldn't even come to me. Uh, he says that you, I, and you've been weary of me, O Israel, even though I've done these wonderful things. In verse 23, you have not brought me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought, bought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins, and you have wearied me with your iniquities." So they didn't bring the burnt offerings. Do you know what the burnt offering is? I think some of you do. Leviticus chapter 1. That they would bring the burnt offering and it was a free will offering. And they would take that animal and they would put it on the altar and all of that animal was consumed. A free will offering of worship. And what it symbolizes is that that worshiper was saying that in this burnt offering that I bring, that I give all myself to you, Lord. You see, you and I are called in Romans chapter 12 to what? Be a living sacrifice unto the Lord that we may know what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God in our lives. To be a living sacrifice, to give our praises to him, to 
to give our t- devotion to him, uh, to be ones that we are serving him. All these sacrifices that are mentioned in the New Testament, we can do a study on that. We have before. But the bottom line is be a living sacrifice unto the Lord and be a burnt offering unto the Lord saying, Lord, you, I give all of myself to you. I'm not going to hold back anything. As I've said so many times before, and I'll just remind you, that when we become a Christian, it isn't that Jesus is added to our life. He is our life. And even as we sang tonight, is that truly what is in our hearts? That, Lord, I surrender all. And the heart that says that is going to experience just the blessing and the closeness and the intimacy of the Lord and great joy in your heart and peace. Oh, that's what we were meant to to do in this life, to have that close fellowship with him. And so the Lord is pleading with them. He says, you didn't give those things. You you, you didn't want fellowship or devotion. And, And God was grieved at their sins. There is one thing. It's sad in the church today that sometimes in the church, you know, the emphasis is God wants your money. And God wants, you know, you to do this, and God wants you to do that. Listen, there's one thing above anything else. I'm not saying that giving, you know, is not good or serving is not good. Of course those things are good. But one thing that he wants above anything else is your heart. He wants your heart. A heart devoted to him, given to him, set on him trusting in him and resting in his love and and growing in in that love that he has for us. And he goes on in verse 25, I even, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Isn't that good news? I can remember my sins. I think, Lord, that I'm not what I could be, not what I should be. I've messed up. I've sinned, and I'm so thankful I can put it under the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Lord comes along and he says, I don't remember your sin. You've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. You know, I like where the scripture, it says that he takes our sins and throws them as far as the east is from the west. He didn't say the north from the south. It's interesting. If you draw a line from north to south, they meet. You go to the North Pole. Then you start going south. You go to South Pole, then you start going north. He said from the east to the west. If you go east, you continually go east. Those two lines never meet. If you go west, you continually go west, right? He says, I take your sins and throw them as far as the east is from the west. Another place in the Bible says that he throws our sins into the, the deepest sea. And I like what Corey Tin Boone says. Then he puts up a no fishing sign. Listen, we are forgiven. We are forgiven people. And that right there, I think that sometimes we, that lose meaning for us. And even as we discuss in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And we know that if we sin, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's good news for you and for me because that's why Jesus came to take care of the sin problem. That's why he went to the cross to die for your sins and my sins. And if it wasn't for that, we would have no hope. That's the message that we're to give to others, that Jesus Christ died for your sins. 
And I like what Greg Laurie said at the Harvest, you know, um, uh, crusade that he had in Anaheim uh, this uh, last weekend. It was marvelous, and many got saved. But, you know, Jesus didn't come to make, you know, bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And we were dead spiritually because of our sin. But now we're alive. We're alive spiritually because of his great love towards us, as Ephesians chapter 2 declares to us. And he goes on, he says, put me in remembrance, verse 26, let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted for first father, your first father's sin, and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. And again, as he says here, speaking to them, he says, I've forgiven you, but he was grieved when they sinned. Listen, when we sin, the Lord grieves. There is the grieving of the Holy Spirit. And if God grieves, it should grieve us, right? That's how we should look at sin. We shouldn't look at sin of, well, boys will be boys. You know, I guess I'm sin. We're all sinners. Ha, ha, ha. I'm going to go out and sin. No. that Oh, I, you know, sin against God, a holy God. And then as the Lord is grieved over it, we should be grieved over it. And the Lord here is, and he says, because of your sin and continual sin, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be captivity that's going to come. But as we move into chapter 44 now, we can read that it's told to us that yet here now, O Jacob, my servant in Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jezurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty. Notice that again. And floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. And they will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. And one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and the name himself by the name of Israel. So as we go into this chapter, again, he's calling his people to himself. I've chosen you. I have formed you. And I will bless you. And I will pour out my spirit on you. I have called you Jezurun, which we see used here. I believe it's only used three other times, and that is in the book of Deuteronomy. And that's just another name for his people. It it means the upright one. Uh, It's speaking of Israel. They weren't very upright, were they? But I do want to pour out my spirit on you who are thirsty. You guys know the story, as I've already quoted, that, that Jesus, that he would say to the people, come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, and out of your innermost will flow torrents of living water. You see, he said that on the last day of the great feast. That's the Feast of Tabernacle. And the Feast of Tabernacle was, you know, the Feast of Booths. Uh, it, it was like a, a big camp out that happened in Jerusalem in the fall. They'll be celebrating, I believe, the Feast of Tabernacles here in the next few weeks here in Jerusalem. And, and, and the feasts that surround that. And Yom Kippur in September, October. I don't know exactly when it is. But back in Jesus' day, the people would come and they would sleep on the temple in Jerusalem around the hills and it was like a big camp out is what it was. That's why they called it the Feast of Tabernacles of Booths because they would make these little tents and they would sleep under the stars and then the fathers would tell their children how the Lord provided for them in the 40 years wilderness. 
how they slept under the stars and how he provided water for them through the rock and manna that fell from heaven. So it was a festive time. It was a fun time. It was like a big camp out. It was a time for families to remember and commemorate how the Lord had brought them through the wilderness into the promised land. And in the mornings, the priests would have a procession. They would go from the temple. And if you ever go to Israel with us, that we will show you where the temple stood. And then at the bottom of the hill, the very lowest point of Jerusalem, that there is a pool called the Pool of Siloam. You know and recognize that name in John chapter 9. He told the man who was blind, go to the Pool of Siloam. And we actually will go to that They just found it, excavated it, the actual place where Jesus healed that man that was born blind of John chapter 9. But the priests would go down there to the pool of Siloam and they would fill their jars full of water and then they would sing songs coming back up to the temples about a quarter of a mile, maybe a little bit longer, walk to the temple and on the pavements and all the people are there and, and they would pour out the water on the pavement. And then on the last day of the feast, what they would do is they would go down to the pool Siloam with their jars, but they didn't fill it with water. And they would come back with empty jars. And it commemorated that when the Lord brought them into the promised land, no more water from the rock, no more manna that fell from heaven that he had provided for them. And it's very significant as they're there and there's this pause. All of a sudden, this one stands up and he says, if any of you thirst, come to me and drink. And out of your innermost will flow torrents of living water. Of course, speaking of the Holy Ghost, the the Holy Spirit. And the people, that would mean something to them. They would think back to Isaiah. They would think to chapter 44, verse 3 here. For I will pour water on him who's thirsty and the floods on the dry ground. They would think back to where the Lord is saying that I'm going to, to make rivers in the desert. I want to pour out uh, fresh water on you. And here Jesus is saying, come to me. That's a declaration only the Lord makes. And here's Messiah that's in their midst saying, come to me and drink. So again, the question is, where are you going when you're thirsty? I talk to people all the time that they're looking for satisfaction uh, for the thirst that they have in their soul and in their heart to be quenched by all kinds of things of the world and it won't be and I pray for us that we would really again make this our own that Lord that you would fill me with your spirit you want to bless you want to do new work in me you want to make a road in the wilderness you, you want to uh, make rivers in the desert of my life Lord, you want me to glorify you. And here the Lord is talking about that time. And then in verse 5, I believe it's speaking of the time when the Lord comes back, when one will say, I'm the Lord's, another will call himself by the name of Jacob. In other words, they're not afraid to say, I belong to the Lord. Speaking of the millennium, called themselves by the name of Jacob. Hey, I belong to God's people. I'm not ashamed to say that. So that's what's going to be the prevalent saying amongst the people as the Lord comes back and establishes his kingdom. But what about you and me today? Now, it's getting harder for us to say that we're Christians without being persecuted, right? Or laughed at or 
Maybe even go through consequences. Maybe at work, people hold you out at arm's length. You're not going to be popular. Guys, you're not going to be popular out in the field as you're working. You students up on the campus, man, that's a place where there are going to be those who are going to come against you and make fun of you. Maybe even in your own family, that you're going to go through some kind of persecution and hard times and difficulties because you say that I belong to the Lord. And I'm not ashamed to say that. And that's why, again, to remind you that we really need to to bless one another and encourage one another. You know, I was talking to somebody today on the radio program, and, and, and one of the things I told them was that I want Calvary Chapel to be a place where you can come and be refreshed and renewed and, and get away from just the, the stuff of the world. I don't want to bring the world here. You get enough of the world out there, don't we? I want to be about the things of the Lord. And for us to be here and to, to be encouraged and to be uplifted and strengthened so we can go out there and be a light up on the campus and out in the field, guys, to our families and in our neighborhoods, where you work at the hospital, where you work in the schools, teachers, wherever it is that you're planted, that God wants to use you to be a light, to give truth to others. And it isn't easy. It's difficult, isn't it? It's getting more difficult. But let's encourage each other and pray for one another and let's stand for what is right. God has us here for such a time as this. Remember Esther was told that in the book of Esther? Esther, how do you know that God hasn't raised you up to put you in the palace there for such a time as this? And I love that verse because he has us here for such a time as this. So I don't want to waste a lot of time. But I want to be a light when I can and where I am and, and how the Lord desires to use me. In verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do and let him declare it and set it in order for me? Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them and do not fear, nor be afraid. For I have told you that from that time and declared it. You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. There is no other God. I am the first. I am the last. Who's that remind you of? Go to Revelation chapter 1. When we, there Jesus, he proclaims himself to be the first and the last. Here in Isaiah, the Lord says, I'm the first and the last. So what does it tell us? It tells us that Jesus is claiming that he is God. There are those who will come along and say, well, Jesus isn't God. You know, he's just a good teacher, a great moral educator, you know, a spiritual guru. You know, even those who claim to be Christians. Oh, I'm a Christian. I believe in the Sermon on the Mount. I believe what Jesus taught. He, he was a great religious leader. He is God. He is the first, the last, the Alpha, the Omega. He claims that. And here Isaiah says that I am God. There is no other. There is no other God. I alone am the Lord. And he makes that claim here over and over again. There's no other rock. Our rock is Jesus Christ, upon which we build upon the firm foundation. 
And we know that they would continue in their idol worship. So he speaks about that in verse 9. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor hear that they may be ashamed. Who would form a gold or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear and they shall be ashamed together. So the foolishness of idol worship once again coming out. You know, the idol is inferior to the maker. That makes sense. An idol cannot help you. So it ends up causing the people to be weak and hungry. And it's the same with us. If anything has priority over the Lord in our lives. And then he goes on and he continues talking about the foolishness of idols. The blacksmith in verse 12 with the tongs worked one in the coals, fashioned it with hammers and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk and fashion it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that they may remain in the house. Verse 14, he cuts down the cedar for himself. He takes the cypress and the oak and he secures it for himself. Among the trees of the forest, he plants a pine and then the rain nourishes it. And then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a God and worships. It. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire with the, this half. He eats meat and roasts the roast and is satisfied. Even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a God. He carved images. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. The foolishness of idols, man fastens it, he makes it, he plants a tree, he waters it, he goes out and he cuts the tree down and he used part of the tree to, to warm himself with a fire uh, to, to be able to cook with. And then the other half, he makes an idol and bows down to it. Yeah, and we read that and we think how foolish it is. But we need to be careful. You know, sometimes people say, I don't like going through Isaiah and Jeremiah and those books because over and over again, the Lord is saying, you know, about, you know, talking about their idol worship and to turn away. And he keeps repeating it over and over again. Listen, when the Lord repeats something in the word of God, it's probably because we don't get it all the time. It's kind of like our kids growing up when they were younger. Did you feel like parents that you had to tell your kids a thousand times I've told you, right? And then one day they'll surprise you and they'll actually do it. And that means that they're understanding. Well, a heavenly father reminds us in his word of his word given to us. And as we read it and as we go over it, finally it begins to click that, you know what? We can do foolish things like that as well. That I can turn to something that I put my hope in, that what I turn to in my hour of need, what motivates me in life, that ends up becoming an idol. And it's foolish is what it is. Now, it doesn't mean we can't enjoy things. It doesn't mean we can't do well in business. It doesn't mean that uh, any of those things, you know, but it, it means this. If you are turning to those things and trusting in those things over the Lord and they're a priority in your life, really in the honesty of your heart, 
As I said, I got to be careful that ministry doesn't become an idol. That if it is, then it's foolishness. So we can look at them and we can say, I'll never have a statue in my house. You know, I wouldn't cut down a tree and use half of it to make a fire and the other half to bow down to. Well, we can put so much effort into the things of the world and make them a priority in our lives. And the Lord says very gently and compassionately, no, turn to me. And let me be the priority of your life. Surrender truly all to me. Because I want to do so much in your life. The foolishness, those idols can't help you. They can't deliver you. They're not going to to do anything for you. I'm the creator, not the created. I'm the one that's redeemed you. I'm the one that's brought you out of Egypt. And so these reminders in how much he has done for us. What he has done for us is absolutely incredible in forgiving us. You know, the work of the cross comes forgiveness, redemption. We have a right relationship with the Father. We have the hope of heaven. You know, heaven's going to be wonderful, isn't it? It's going to be wonderful, and everything in this world is going to pass away. But yet we can have those things of the world easily become a priority in our lives. And all of a sudden, they are in the forefront of our lives. So we're being reminded of these things because this is for us. This is for me. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Anything that is an idol and false, it is a lie. We saw that on Sunday. Anything that is not of the truth, the Lord says, is a lie. And here, you know, God doesn't want us to go down this foolish, you know, trend um, and road, return to me, be forgiven, always calling us to repentance, Verse 21, remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you, and you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgot, uh, forgotten by me. I have that underlined. Listen, you will not be forgotten of the Lord. He sees you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Oh, other people may forget you. But he says, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. You see that Isaiah, in the middle of this correction and rebuke that he brings to the people and plead to turn back to him, all of a sudden there's this praise. Sing, O heavens. The Lord has done it. Do we have that song in our hearts? Oh, Lord, you have done it because Jesus cried from the cross, it is done. And having that song of praise in our hearts every day that we live. And then in verse 24, thus says the Lord, your 
Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backwards and make their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word with his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. This is very incredible prophecy that's being declared here. The Lord is saying that you're going to go off into captivity, you're going to have Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, but it's going to be rebuilt. And he's talking about Judah being restored in this, and he names Cyrus. Here it is about 170 years before this even happens. And what is so interesting, as you know, that the Lord has said that I'm the one that declares things that have not yet happened. We are going to read in chapter 46, he says that I am the Lord. I know the end from the beginning. So this book dares to prophesy, and here's a very specific prophecy that is given that Cyrus, who is named again before he's even born, 170 years, this is about 700 A.D., 100 years before they even went into the 70 years of captivity by Babylon. And Cyrus is going to be the one that's going to be my instrument that's going to allow the Jews to come back to rebuild Jerusalem and build the temple and the foundation that is laid around it. Absolutely incredible. They go into captivity beginning in 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, the king of Babylon in 586 B.C., destroys Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. 536 B.C., Cyrus comes along. And it's interesting here how specific the Bible is. I will say to the deep, be dry. I will say, dry up your rivers. You know how Cyrus defeated the Babylonians? Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar's there, the king of Babylon. He's given that party to a thousand of his lords. And there they took those, those sanctified vessels from the temple that his grandfather had brought back, Nebuchadnezzar. They took the treasures of the temple, put them in the pagan temple in Babylon. Belshazzar orders all those cups and, and, and bowls and stuff to be brought out so they can toast to the gods of Babylon, to wood, stone, all of this. So they were toasting out of those cups that had been sanctified for God's use for the temple. And here they are blaspheming against God. And all of a sudden, there's a handwriting on the wall, right? And Belshazzar sees it. And he's very much frightened. He calls for his magicians, astrologers, diviners. And here the Lord is saying that I will shut them up. They don't know anything. They're worthless. And Belshazzar says, what is that writing? Meany, meany, tekel you farces. They said, we don't know. We have absolutely no idea. Queen Mother comes out and says, Belshazzar, your grandfather, had a man that was in his palace that he didn't interpret dreams, and he'll interpret that for you. He's a man of God, Daniel. And between Daniel, the last time we hear of him, there in, in Daniel chapter 4, 
to Daniel chapter 5, when that has taken place with Belshazzar, it was a number of years, about 20 years. For 20 years, we don't know what Daniel was doing in the palace. Nebuchadnezzar passes off the scene that we know that Daniel probably continued to teach at the school of prophecy. And all of a sudden, the queen mother comes out and says, get Daniel. He'll tell you the interpretation. And Daniel, an elderly man, comes out and he says, I'll give you the interpretation. I don't want to be a third ruler in the kingdom. You can keep your stuff, Belshazzar. Meaning, meaning, tackle your farces. What it means is this, that you have been found in the, weighed in the balances. You have been found wanting. And this night... The kingdom's going to be handed over to the Medes and the Persians. In other words, that you've been weighed in the balances, you've been found wanting, and you are a lightweight Belshazzar. And the kingdom's going to be taken from you. You're a dead man. That night, you know what happened? Here's Cyrus, who's named here. He did a great engineering feat. Babylon had great walls around it, had double walls around it. And the Euphrates River would run under it, that mighty river, and then there was a moat around between the outer wall and the inner wall, is what historians and archaeologists believe. Some believe that those walls were as high as 360 feet high. I don't know if they were or not, but it was a mighty city. And I think that Belshazzar's inside, that he's having, you know, this party, he's getting drunk, and, and he's, you know, with a thousand of his lords, he's not worried about the Medes and the Persians outside. They can't get into this city. The walls, there's no way they're going to get above those walls. We can just lock ourselves in and we can stay for a long time. And in this city, we can plant gardens. And we got water here, the Euphrates River. We are set for the rest of our lives. And there he is. And he is blaspheming God. And all of a sudden, this prophecy begins to come true because Cyrus comes. And what he does is he diverts the flow of the Euphrates River to where it dried up the beds spoken of here, right here in Isaiah chapter 44. Exactly as the Lord said, they walked under the walls. I'm going to read you a couple of verses in chapter 45, and then we're going to close. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and lose the armor of king, to open before him the double door so that the gates will not be shut. And I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. And I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. So they go under those the dry riverbed. They come to the inner walls and the gates were open. They weren't closed. They went in a war didn't break out. They killed Bezazar and all the leaders and took over Babylon. Exactly as the Bible said, 170 years before it happened. And named Cyrus by name. Folks, we can trust the word of God given to us. And even as Peter, as he would say, you recall in his epistle, and, and then we're going to close, he said that we have this prophetic word confirmed, which you do well and heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This book is inspired from the beginning to the end, and the Lord dares to make predictions and prophecies all throughout this book. A third of this book is that, and every dot and tittle is fulfilled. He is 100% right. We can trust this book. Don't let anybody ever tell you that you can't, that this is not the word of God. 
Because this is an amazing book. You know why? Because it's inspired by God. And it is true. And the promises that he gives to you and to me are true. So may we be a people that we trust what this book says to us and how we live presently and our future that is before us. The Lord's going to come back and his kingdom's going to be established and that's going to happen and we're going to be a part of it and we can have that new song that is in our hearts and listen to the world. We can let them know what the handwriting on the wall is. And maybe, maybe at work, you've been there 20 days, you've been there 20 weeks, maybe 20 years, and nobody pays any attention to you. Listen, the times weren't going to come where they're going to bring you out when things are heavy and things are falling apart. And they're going to say, that's the man of God, of woman, man or woman of God. We've seen the reality of God in their lives. We know they're a Christian. There's something different. And you'll be used of the Lord. Who's going to be used of the Lord in the days in which we're living in? Those who know the word of God to give it to others. You just be available. Be a light to them. Show love to them. Give the message of hope of Jesus Christ to them. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this incredible book. And I thank you that we can.